Today is the 30th of January 2018. It's Tuesday. Now we are nine days into our Metta Meditation Retreat. In this talk, first of all, I will talk about the spirit of Metta or the nature of Metta. And then I will talk about practicing Metta for difficult persons. I think it's good to be well prepared for this step because quite soon you will switch to the category of the so-called difficult person. <clears throat> so when we engage in the practice of metta meditation, it is always good to remind ourselves of the spirit of metta. So here are some descriptions of what metta is or what it is not, or a description of what we can call a meta-attitude. The first description is from Sayado Ujjanaka, my preceptor when I was a nun. And he very simply uh, said, worldly love is attachment, metta is detachment. And I think it's important to understand that when he talks of detachment, it's not a cold and distant detachment, but it's this metta attitude that is without attachment, that is limitless, boundless, that is unconditional. Then, now a description of the spirit of metta by Bhante Valpola Piananda, an American monk. Metta is firm, but not grasping. It is unshakable, but not tied down. It is gentle, and not hard. It is helpful, but not interfering. It is dignified, but not proud. It is active, not passive. Universal love is released without any restrictions. It gives calm, peace, and unity. So in regard to saying that metta is helpful, but not interfering, I'd like to add a little comment. For example, when I was a meditator at the Chamyayeta Meditation Center in Yangon, back in the early 90s, when I first went 
to Burma. And I was practicing Vipassana meditation. And Sayadaw Ujjanaka, he really stresses the slowing down of all movements, of all activities. I took his advice to heart, and I was really very, very slow in all my activities, also during the meals. And in the dining hall, we meditators were all seated on the floor on little round tables, and on the tables, all the food was there, little balls with the curries and the soup and the tea and the fruit, whatever. And as I said, I was very slow, very mindful, attending to each movement. And so, for example, I would be eating my banana very slowly. And then all of a sudden I would notice that somebody kind of would stick a plate with the cookies in front of my face. The person wanting to be very kind to uh, give me the cookies, you know, also have a cookie. Yes, very kind. But at that moment, not really helpful. That kind of kindness, I found it interfering or imposing something that at that time I did not really want, I did not really need. That was more a disturbance, you know, having this plate. And <sighs> so when we are when we want to help, we always should consider the circumstances or the context and you know, see that this action or the words are really suitable and appropriate. And you know, this is exactly where the other wing of wisdom comes in, what I talked about in my first talk that metta must always be informed by wisdom. Wisdom must be informed by metta. And a last description of metta, and this comes from a 12-year-old girl, Tanya. And I assume up to that point, she had never practiced meditation, never practiced metta meditation. But as I and we have said, you know, metta is a universal human quality. And Tanya, this girl, um, had a liver transplantation when she was one year old. So by the time she was 12, she had already lived 11 years with the liver of somebody else. And she said, my biggest wish is that my family and all the people I love 
stay healthy and well forever. I know that this is not possible, but I wish it anyway. That's the main point, to wish it regardless of the result, to wish it without any expectations. <clears throat> so Sayadaw, or we, have not yet given the instructions to cultivate metta for a difficult person or for an enemy. But during the interviews, we have come to know that basically all of you have had to deal or have to deal with difficult uh, person. Maybe it was difficult because you remembered a difficult situation your friend is in or because it was difficult because a difficult person came up in your mind or maybe it became difficult because a fellow yogi triggered some aversion or irritation to arise. Or maybe it was one of the teachers. <laughs> and we know from experience when irritation, anger, hatred comes up, this can be and is challenging because the habitual reaction towards such a difficult person is usually not a friendly one. And here, again, we need to remember that when we develop metta, it is we develop metta for the person as a human being. A human being just like you and me. So to see that this other person also wants to be happy, like I want to be happy, to see and understand that this person does not want to suffer in the way I do not want to suffer. So we should always remember our shared humanity. That's what I talked about two days ago. And in the talk I also mentioned that many religious leaders tell us to see other human beings as our brothers and sisters, to see all human beings as one big family. And I also mentioned in that talk that somehow the Burmese language facilitates this understanding of seeing everybody as a family member. We can or we should never reduce a person to a particular deed or to a particular harmful action. 
this is never the whole picture. This is never the whole person. So this person, as a father, might be very affectionate towards his son. Or the neighbor who has talked behind our back may be a very friendly salesperson. So we should understand that the other person is always more than just one harmful act. So again, can we see the human being, the human being that is not different from me, the human being who has the same wishes and the same fears to see our shared humanity? A trick to see the human being and not the nasty neighbor or the cruel murderer is to visualize this person completely naked without any clothes. And without clothes, a person seems to be more vulnerable or less protected. And so it helps, it helps see the person as a human being, as a fragile human being. And this helps us connecting on the heart level. I think it is very important to state with the practice of loving kindness, we do not approve of an unwholesome or harmful deed that somebody has done. For example, when somebody has harmed us, hurt us emotionally, or if another person has even inflicted injuries. So with the practice of metta, we do not say that this act was right or correct. We do not say that it was justified. So with metta, we do not approve of this deed. But instead, we try not to react with anger. We try not to react or fall into the trap of these unwholesome habitual reactions of anger, ill will, frustration, or irritation. And when we manage not to fall into this trap, when we can stay with metta, we actually see more clearly because we do not get trapped in anger. So then, as a result, we do not see the situation, we do not see the person through the lens of anger. But we are able to see this person as a human being who wants happiness, just like me. And this is also why we start with ourselves, to cultivating metta for ourselves first, to deeply understand 
that this wish for well-being and happiness is deeply rooted not only in us, but in every human being, in every living being. There is no doubt that this cruelty or the meanness is blameworthy. Such harmful deeds, such cruelty, such torture, they are unwholesome. And such deed, deeds need to be condemned because they lack any ethical integrity. But can we see the person apart from the deed? To see the person just as another human being? I think this is the great difficulty. In regard to thoughts of aversion, hatred, ill will, Banteji, Bante Gunaratna, said very bluntly, hatred is a thoughtless way of wasting one's energy. <laughs> I am sure that all of you are familiar with stories of great harm and violence. Harm and violence that has been done to you or that has been done to others. The following story happened about 16 years ago in Switzerland. A school teacher was shot by the father of a student. And that student was a girl uh, who was 13 years old. And she came from an Alban Muslim family. And this girl suffered from this depression and she was about to commit suicide. The teacher had realized this and so he rescued her in the last minute before she was jumping off a bridge. But then the father of that girl, he became very angry with the teacher. He thought the teacher had an affair with his daughter. And uh, in his anger, a few days later, he shot the teacher on his way home. The teacher had been married and his wife was pregnant with the second child. So the wife could have had a very good reason to be angry with the murderer of her husband. She could have fallen into resentment, anger and ill will, and she could have drowned in her grief and big loss. But the wife decided to choose the path of love 
for her own sake and for the sake of her children. And 12, 12 years after the loss of her husband, she wrote a book in which she described her struggles and her deep inner transformation. And she even came to a place where she could say that everything that had happened was good in the way it had happened. In other words, she came to a full acceptance, a full acceptance of the unfolding of her life. So here is what she wrote in that book. To make sure that my children did not suffer from traumatic reactions, each kind word and each smile mattered. Each minute of being fully present mattered. It mattered whether I took a breath based on anger or on love. It was so much more important to watch a little bird with the children than to complain about the terrible things that happened in the past. So choosing the path of love, she found inner peace. We might think that such noble behavior, not to give in to anger, resentment, hatred, that such a noble behavior is just a nice idea, but not really realistic or applicable. Or we might think that only highly realized beings are capable of such a noble behavior. But this is not true. There have been, and still nowadays, there are many quite ordinary people who are capable to manifest such a noble behavior, like the wife of the teacher or the parents of the daughter who was murdered in South Africa. I'm going to mention two other quite ordinary people who took the Buddha's instruction to heart. You may have heard stories of Tibetan people being imprisoned and tortured in Chinese prisons. Tibetan nuns and monks, but also lay people. And many of them underwent um, the most atrocious forms of torture. And still, their heart and their mind did not respond with anger or hatred, but instead with kindness and compassion. 
So they had developed such strong and powerful metta, kindness and compassion. This was their answer to the cruel uh, actions taken against them. One Tibetan refugee, an ordinary layperson, was in a Chinese prison for 18 years. Finally, he could escape and he fled to India. He went to Dharamsala, where he met the Dalai Lama. And he encountered, he related all the experiences that he had to go through in these 18 years in the prison. And he mentioned that during these 18 years, he had encountered a few dangers. And the Dalai Lama thought that these dangers were uh, external dangers, like threats to his life. But the refugee said that these dangers were the moments when he feared to lose compassion towards the Chinese, when he feared to, be, to become caught up with anger towards them. I still get goosebumps when I tell this story, although I've told it uh, many times. And here, is another person who came to the conclusion that love, meta-love, is the only beneficial answer to hatred. It's Eddie Hillesum. She lived in Holland during the Second World War. And she was a young Jewish artist and writer. She was not really a religious person. She led a rather bohemian uh, life. And during that time, all the Jews had to wear the yellow star, marking them as Jews. And they had a really, really hard time. They suffered a great deal of fear, of terror and uncertainty. And during that time, Etty wrote many letters to her friends. And it is through these letters that we know about her, because later she died in one of the concentration camps. In these letters, she asked herself, what can we do? What is the answer to all the hatred, the fear, and the violence. She finally came to the realization or understanding that the victory belonged to others, to the Nazi, when she reacted with hatred and fear. And it became clear to her that the only answer was love, meta-love. 
when she could answer their hatred with love, the victory was hers. In one of the suttas, a discourse from the Anguttara Nikaya, we have a passage that shows one of the practical applications of loving-kindness. The advice is very simple, but often not so easy to do. So this is the Buddha's advice. If you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving-kindness towards that person. Thus, the grudge towards that person can be removed. Some people might see the practice of metta-meditation in a rather abstract way. For example, just as this general wish for the well-being and happiness of all beings. Or people might see it as a type of formal meditation in which one is completely absorbed in an boundless field of loving-kindness. Of course, this can also happen, but it must go beyond this. And here in this passage, we see a very simple, a very specific approach to the metta practice. Ayaviranyani spoke on the purifying aspect of the metta practice in her first talk. So the purification of the heart and mind in the metta practice does not happen by attending to the defilements. Defilements such as holding a grudge or anger or envy, attachment, longing, and so on. So to pay attention to these defilements, this is the way of vipassana meditation. There we are mindful of the defilement that has arisen because we want to understand the nature of that particular defilement and also in understand in order to understand the nature of all things. But the purification of the heart and mind through the practice of metta meditation happens differently. As Aya Viranyani has pointed out so clearly, we acknowledge that the defilement has arisen, let's say anger. We do not kind of push it away, we do not suppress it. However, we try not to react with aversion to the defilement that has arisen. 
And after having acknowledged this defilement, we simply bring our focus back to the metta and continue to cultivate the metta wish for whatever person is the object of our meditation. So we bring the mind back to the metta practice because we want to strengthen this quality of loving kindness. We want to make it uh, more powerful, more pervasive. So by not paying attention to the defilement, it's like saying gently and softly, not now. We have acknowledged it's there, but now it's not the time to deal with that. And then the stronger our metta becomes, the less there is room for defilements to arise. Or the stronger our metta becomes, the more easily it can overpower the defilements. When there is a strong field of metta, then anger has simply no opportunity to arise. And when there is a strong habit of cultivating metta and living with metta, then ill will or anger does not find a base to grow on. This is like planting a seed on a concrete slab out in the sun. There is simply no way that the seed uh, will start to grow. So when we cult loving kindness, it has two effects. On the one hand, it strengthens and deepens the quality of metta, loving-kindness, benevolence, and friendliness. So that means we strengthen and deepen this wholesome disposition of the heart and the mind, this wholesome and beneficial quality of the heart and mind. And the other effect is that on the other hand, it weakens and counteracts any forms of ill will, anger, hatred, or irritation. That means it weakens and counteracts all forms of dosa. So any form of dosa that is already there or prevent a dosa-based defilement from arising because there is simply no room, no opportunity to enter the mind which is filled with metta. So let's go back to this passage from the Anguttara Nikaya where the Buddha said, 
if, we, if you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving kindness towards that person. Thus, the grudge towards that person can be removed. It's a characteristic of the Buddha's teaching that the presence of a grudge is seen a problem rather for the subject and not of its object. <clears throat> that is, it's a problem for the person who holds the grudge and not for the person towards whom the grudge is directed. So it's not about doing something to change the other person. It's rather about to change oneself. It's about to transform our own heart and mind. On the other hand, Western thought naturally faces outward. For example, Western psychology would rather seek to solve the problem by finding ways the judge-causing person might be changed or how one could make him or her to apologize. However, looking at this issue from a Buddhist point of view, the reason for this grudge is entirely irrelevant. Whether it's quote-unquote right or wrong, the holding of a grudge is first of all doing damage to oneself. In this passage, it says, giving birth to a grudge. We can replace this giving birth to anger, or giving birth to ill will, or giving birth to hatred, giving uh, birth to envy. So basically, we can um, replace it by uh, any forms of dosa, unwholesome thoughts or mental states. So a grudge, any form of dosa, is a toxic and unhealthy mental state. And these mental states, they are like poison for the heart. But these unhealthy and toxic uh, thoughts and emotions are nurtured and kept alive by repeated or repeatedly thinking these uh, angry thoughts. And so repeatedly uh, thinking an angry thought or holding a grudge towards another person, this is actually like drinking the poison oneself and then expecting the other person to die of it.
Another person who was able to replace the hatred with loving kindness was Eva Kor. She was born in Romania. She was Jewish and she survived the concentration camp in Auschwitz. But the rest of her family, they all died. Later, she moved to the USA. And for her, forgiveness was an important step to live in peace. And here we can understand forgiveness as an aspect of metta, of loving kindness. So she had said, I firmly believe that every person has the right to live without the pain of the past. Most of the people have a big problem with forgiveness because society asks for revenge. We have to respect the victims and acknowledge their painful memories. But I always ask myself if my beloved ones who have all died really want that I live with hatred and rage for the rest of my life. I do the practice of forgiveness for myself. Forgiveness is an act of healing myself and it gives me a lot of power. I call it a miraculous remedy. It does not cost anything, it works, and there are no harmful side effects. So the Buddha treats a grudge or ill will, anger, and so on, as an affliction that needs to be healed for the sake of our own well-being. And the antidote or the medicine for it is loving-kindness, preferably in high doses. So seen in this light, loving-kindness includes forgiveness. When there is pure metta for a difficult person or an enemy, then there is also forgiveness. <clears throat> so even though we shift our attitude towards the other person from being angry to being kind, this does not mean that we approve the harmful action the other person has done. So the other person for whom I hold a grudge or towards whom I'm angry, this person might be entirely guilty of some transgression of an unlawful act. And this means we can still take action, whatever actions is appropriate to deal with the situation. 
So reacting with metta does not mean that we need to stay passive. The only thing we need to be careful of is that we do not react on the base of anger, but that, it, that, but that our reaction comes from a place of kindness. I think theoreti theoretically we can all understand this. It makes sense, doesn't it? But when it comes to practice, then we realize that it is not so easy. Now I want to relate two experiences with a meta being whose really strong and powerful meta made a lasting impression on me. And it's about Venerable Mahakosananda. He was a Cambodian monk and he could flee the genocide of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. He went into the refugee camps in Thailand to talk to the Cambodian refugees. Later on, he moved to the USA and towards the end of his life, he lived in a small Cambodian temple in Massachusetts, not so far away from the IMS, the big meditation center in Massachusetts. So my first encounter with him happened in 1997. At that time, I was staying at the Chamyeyeta Meditation Center in Mobi, the forest center, about 30 kilometers north of Yangon. One day, we got a call from the main center in Yangon and they said that the foreign monk would come and visit the forest center. And then they also told that this foreign monk would give a Dhamma talk to the Burmese meditators. But then nobody could say who this monk was or from what other country he was. So then finally he arrived, got out of the car, and I realized it was Venerable Mahagosananda. And, you know, he was going to give the talk in English. And then Sayado Uindaka, at that time he was the abbot of that forest center, he said, Do Ariyanyani, you are going to translate from English to Burmese. And at that time, my Burmese was not good at all. I mean, I could better understand Burmese, but talk and translate the Dhamma talk into Burmese, it was far beyond my skills. But there was no other person around who could do it. 
And so as soon as Saito or Indaka had said that, I, I was so much worried. I got so nervous to the point where my knees started trembling. <laughs> and, you know, I was very good at getting nervous and all anxious and so on. So we went into the meditation hall. Venerable Mahagosananda sat on the seat on the throne, like the one here. I sat to his feet, and Mimi was next to me as a backup. <laughs> and still, you know, my heart was pounding and nervous. And, you know, if I only had known, then I could have prepared myself somehow. But anyway, and then he started by reciting the Namotasa three times, as we do here. And, you know, the way we pronounce it. Burmese people pronounce the Pali a bit different. And although the Burmese people understood what he was chanting, somehow when he had uh, recited it three times, I gave the Burmese translation. And so I went, Namo Tata Bhagavato Arahato Tama Tampo Tata three times. And what happened during this time it took to repeat it three times was so amazing. I could barely believe it, but I experienced it. All my nervousness, all my anxiety, my trembling knees, it all stopped. And when I had finished it, I was sitting there calmly, peacefully, completely at ease. So it, Mahagosananda's metta was almost palpable. It was so strong. It was quite amazing. Very beautiful experience. And before I want to relate a second encounter with him, here a short uh, story of him going to one of the big refugee camps in Thailand, where tens of thousands of Cambodians had fled the genocide of the Khmer Rouge. And we must understand that these refugees, they had lost many of their family members, spouses and fathers and sons and children, and their homes had been destroyed and the monasteries had been destroyed and desecrated. So they really, really had gone through a lot of suffering. And so Venerable Mahakosananda visited one of these refugee camps and he announced that on the following day there would be a small Buddhist ceremony and that all who wished to come would be welcome. So 
Buddhism had been desecrated by Pol Pot, and people were wondering if anyone would go. But then the next day, tens of thousands of people would flock to that big field. A little stage had been set up, and they had put a chair on that stage. And Venerable Mahagosananda sat there on that chair in front of this huge gathering. He sat there a little while in silence, and then he started. He began chanting the invocations that usually start a Buddhist ceremony. And when he started with these chants, people started weeping because to hear these precious words, these precious uh, sounds was so touching for them after all the suffering they had been going through. Of course, then everybody was wondering what Venerable Mahakosananda was going to say. What can one possibly say to such a group of people? So what Venerable Mahagosananda did next was to recite a verse from the Dhammapada <clears throat> and repeat it over and over again. It was the verse, hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. So over and over, Venerable Mahakosananda chanted this verse. And again, we should remember that these people had as much cause to hate as anyone on earth. Yet, he sat there chanting this verse over and over again. And gradually, one by one, then hundreds, thousands of voices joined together in unison, and everybody was chanting together. Hatred never ceases by hatred. By love alone it will cease. This is an eternal law. Having Venerable Mahagosananda as a strong leader, the people could join in these words because they must have understood intuitively that this was true and that this was the only way to heal their deep wounds. Then another encounter I had with Venerable Mahagosananda that was in 2005. At that time, I was teaching a one-month retreat at the Forest Refuge 
This is the long-term center part of IMS, Inside Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, not so far from Boston. So while teaching there, a friend invited me to what he said, Venerable Mahagosananda's 76th birthday party. Well, of course, it was not a birthday party in a worldly sense. That was, as it later turned out, two years before Venerable Mahagosananda's death. And at that time, he suffered already from Alzheimer dementia. So at that little Cambodian temple, not so far away from IMS, they had set up a big tent in the garden for that occasion. There was a little stage inside the tent. And on a chair, there was Venerable Mahagosananda, just sitting there, just sitting there for the whole time of the ceremony. He did not say one word. As I said, he suffered from Alzheimer dementia. So it was other monks, other people who did chanting, who gave speeches, uh, Dhamma talk, and so on. But then, at the end of the ceremony, they put a little table in front of Venerable Mahagosananda with two bowls. In one bowl, there were rose petals, and then an empty bowl. And then Venerable Mahagosananda put his hands over the empty bowl, and one by one, we could go in front of Venerable Mahagosananda, take some of the rose petals, and then let them fall on his hands. And apparently in Cambodian uh, tradition, this is a sign of wishing long life, wishing well. So he was sitting there, and this happened, and again, when I passed in front of him and let some rose petals fall on his hands, I was just engulfed in his presence, in his kindness. It was still very strong. After that, this friend told me, now I want to introduce you to a Cambodian woman. So we went to her, and then she told me her story. And it was an atrocious story. It was incredible what she told me. I, and probably you as well, we have read stories how people were tortured and ill-treated, but then hearing it from a person standing in front of you was somehow different. So she told me that during the time of the Khmer Rouge, one day the soldiers took her and threw her into a deep pit where there were many dead people. 
So she was alive, but they threw her into this pit and then filled it up with earth. And she said, although she was down there covered with earth, she did not die. And she said, you know, the devas came and dropped, dropped water into my mouth to keep her alive. But then somehow she could get out, rescue her, but then the soldiers spotted her, saw her, that there was a person alive. And what the soldiers then did was, with a big knife, they cut out two big pieces of flesh, one on her thigh and one on her buttock. And so the soldiers probably assumed that she was going to die of an infection because she had no medical care. There was no medical care around. But again, she told me that at night the devas came and uh, cleaned and treated her wounds. And in this way, she survived. And she could flee to Thailand. And then later on from Thailand, she moved to the States. And when she related her story to me, it was so amazing to see that there was no anger in her voice. There was no anger in her gestures. And when she had finished telling the story, she came up to me and gave me a big hug. And this was the most intense and most loving hug I've ever received. It was simply overwhelming. So then it became obvious to me that she really had taken Venerable Mahakosananda's advice to heart. And she had replaced the hatred by love, by metta, because she realized and understood that only metta, kindness, can heal the deep wounds of hatred. And she had realized it that it was for her own sake, that it was for her own well-being, both physically and mentally. She realized that there was no other choice than letting go of the hatred and to fill the heart with loving-kindness. So whether we call it metta or we call it forgiveness, a kind and loving and forgiving heart has the power to appease the burning fires of hatred, of ill will, of anger. So to close this talk, I want to read again the advice from the Buddha. 
If you give birth to a grudge towards any person, cultivate loving kindness towards that person. Thus, the grudge towards that person can be removed. So may we all be able to remember and to follow the Buddha's advice. May we all be able to manifest our actions of body, speech, and mind by metta for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.